please their patrons and employers. We, in this happy and enlightened age, must exercise our imagination to span the gulf which separates us from those lamentable departed days. Securely established upon the rock of purity and virtue, ceaselessly cleansed by the strong tides of universal suffrage, we can afford to show tolerance and even indulgence towards the weaknesses and vices of those vanished generations without in any way compromising our own integrity. It is strange indeed that such a system should have produced for many generations a succession of greater captains and abler statesmen than all our widely extended education, competitive examinations, and democratic system have put forth. Apart from the church and the learned professions, the area of selection was restricted entirely to the circles of rank, wealth, and landed property but these comprised several thousand families, within which and among whom an extremely searching rivalry and appraisement prevailed. In this focus of the nation men were known and judged by their equals with intimate knowledge and a high degree of comprehension. There may be more truth than paradox in Lord Fisher's brutal maxim, favoritism is the secret of efficiency. There was, of course, great need to seek out ability. Appointments and promotions went largely by favour, but favour went largely by merit. The English court under Charles II was no oriental scene of complete subservience, where women were secluded and where men approached the supreme figures with bated breath. It had not the super-centralisation of the French court under Louis XIV. The nobility and wealthy gentlefolk could live on their estates and, though excluded from the fame of national employment, had effective rights which they used frequently against the crown. There were always independent powers in England. This counterpoise enhanced the strength of the central institution. There were degrees, values, and a hierarchy of considerable intrinsic virtue. A great society, sharply criticized but accepted as supreme, indulging every caprice and vanity, and drawing to itself the chief forms of national excellence, presided at the summit of the realm. It is important to remember also the differences of feeling and outlook which separate the men and women of these times from ourselves. They gave a very high, indeed a dominating, place in their minds to religion. It played as large a part in the life of the seventeenth century as sport does now. One of their chief concerns was about the next world and how to be saved. Although ignorant compared with our standards, they were all deeply versed in the Bible and the prayer book. If they read few books, they studied them and digested them thoroughly. They had settled opinions on large questions of faith and doctrine, and were often ready to die or suffer on account of them. Rank and breeding were second only to religion in their esteem. Everyone in court or county society was known and all about them. Their forebears for many generations were carefully scrutinized. The coat of arms which denoted the family's achievements for hundreds of years was narrowly and jealously compared. It was not easy to get into the great world in those days if one did not belong to it. A very clear line was drawn between gentles and simples, and the church and the law were almost the only ladders by which new talent could reach the highest positions. Indeed, religion and family pride together absorbed much of the sentiments now given to nationalism. The unity of Christendom had been ruptured in the Reformation, 
but strong cosmopolitan sympathies prevailed among the educated classes in all the Western countries. We must not imagine that our ancestors were as careless and ignorant about international politics as are the immense political democracies of the present age. Had they been absorbed or amused, as we are, by the inexhaustible trivialities of the day, had their sense been dulled by speed, sport, luxury, and money-making, they could never have taken consciously the dire decisions without which England would not have been preserved. There were many solid citizens, secure in their estates, who pondered deeply and resolved valiantly upon the religious and political issues of the times. Although the administration of England had not attained to anything like the refined and ordered efficiency of France, there was already a strong collective view about fundamental dangers. There was already a recognizable, if rudimentary, foreign office opinion. And there were, in every capital, grave, independent men...